Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Episode 57, Using Technology to Hold Federal Judges Accountable for Their Behavior Toward Their Clerks. My conversation with Lisa Schatzman of the Legal Accountability Project. Lisa is an attorney and advocate based in Washington, D.C., who writes and speaks about judicial accountability. In March 2022, Lisa submitted written testimony for a House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing about the lack of workplace protections for judiciary employees, detailing her personal experience with the harassment and retaliation by a former D.C. Superior Court judge. This led Lisa to create the Legal Accountability Project. As president of the Legal Accountability Project, Elisa's mission is to ensure that law clerks have a positive clerkship experience while extending support and resources to those who do not. Through data collection, analysis, programming, and partnerships with law schools and other stakeholders, Elisa is quantifying the scope of harassment, discrimination, and diversity issues in the courts and using the results to craft effective solutions. Enjoy. Hey everyone, just a quick shout out before we start. Are you enjoying the Page podcast? Consider giving us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast feeds. Also, consider buying us a cup of coffee or two from the link on our blog to help defray some of the production costs. Thanks, and again, enjoy. Aliza, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate you being here today. And to get things started, tell us, what is your current tech setup? I have a MacBook Air. And I have very basic headphones that go with it that I Mm -hmm. broke the recording device in, but continue to enjoy using. And then I use an iPhone XS, which is broken, but I continue to use and an iPod when I work out. (laughs) Low tech, just the basics. Well, I mean, I don't know why you call it low tech. Those are still some very cool machines that you're using. And are you using your Mac's webcam built in for this podcast? Yes. What are you using for your microphone? The internal one in the computer. Ah, okay. So I think you mentioned you've done over 600 podcasts already? 60. I said 60. 60. Excuse me. <laughs> I hope to get to 600. <laughs> are there 600 uh, podcasts out there? You know, I, I'm sure if you keep looking, you'll find them. I'm not sure everyone will necessarily be relative to what you're doing, but there are more than 600 podcasts out there, I'm sure. So, you know, you might want to consider things like looking at certain companies like Elgato. They make some great webcam devices, in particular lights. And I also know they make a couple of mics and video recorders. I use a Logitech webcam for my 4K webcam, and I use a Blue Yeti, which is considered, I think, a good solid microphone that has built-in condensers so that your, your audio will always come out great. 
Of course, I also realizes that those are more expenditures that you may not be ready to do, but just some food for thought for for later. I feel like this is some veiled feedback here on my <laughs> video. No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. That is just constructive, friendly information. You look great. And the, although the audience won't see you because it's a podcast, not a video cast, and you sound great. I'm just saying that one day as you want to improve things, some yeah. things to consider and also for th some things for the listener to consider. So during some of the early interviews I did with video on and some Zoom events, people would like poke at my background, which is just the white wall behind me. And they were like, it looks like a hostage situation. Please change. <laughs> no, 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 no. Your, your background looks fantastic. It's perfect. I think a lot of people need to remember about what is behind them. It, you know, when I do my podcast, everyone gets to see the office inside my house. And, you know, it's just a typical office. I think, although with my office, not only do I have Quotable lawyer books, but I also a lot have... of mugs. Look at how many mugs you have. Oh, I collect <laughs> mugs uh, everywhere I go, nice. and you know, also I've got Grogu from uh, Star Wars and a Porg and a uh, couple of awards I got in the background and a plant and let's see, there's one other picture of my father and a couple other things. So you, you know, to each their own. But the important thing is that make sure that it's appropriate for your audience. You got to tell that a lot to clients that are going to be on a Zoom call, especially with the judge, because sometimes they're always thinking about what's behind them, like a dirty kitchen or a messy bedroom or a Megadeth poster that probably doesn't really belong in a courtroom. But, you know, again, as they say, live and learn. But let's get into the questions. Elizabeth, you're creating a large database. What programs are you using to collect, manage, and utilize all this information? And before you, before you answer that, why don't you tell us what you're doing? Sure. So I am the president and co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project, which is a nonprofit that seeks to ensure that law clerks, so new attorneys, have a positive clerkship experience and then extend support and resources to the ones who don't. I came to this advocacy work based on my personal experience with gender discrimination, harassment and retaliation during my D.C. clerkship a few years ago. So I really think of the nonprofit as the resource I wish existed as a law student applying for clerkships a law clerk facing mistreatment and unsure where to go for help, and a former clerk engaging in the formal judicial complaint process. I launched the nonprofit in June of 2022 in order to address various flaws in the clerkship application process that I personally experienced. The main initiative that I am working on with law schools is a centralized clerkships reporting database which is going to democratize information about judges, ensuring that law students considering a clerkship have as much info about as many judges as possible before they make a really important decision about their careers, where to spend their first year out of law school, who to launch their careers with. I spend a lot of time speaking to students and young alumni, and I say, so you want to clerk? Great. How would you avoid judges who harass their clerks? So some students say, I'd ask someone. But really, who are they going to ask? Clerkship directors say, we tell students to do their research. But again, what research are they going to do when so little information about judges is available on an equitable basis? Handful of law schools conduct a post-clerkship survey of their alumni. Unfortunately, these are really not intended to elucidate information about judges who mistreat their clerks. They're intended to funnel more students into clerkships. So I've created, with some excellent database engineers who educate me on these issues every day, a centralized okay. clerkships reporting database 
which is going to democratize this information for students. Our database is being created fully by the engineers. They are creating our post-clerkship survey, which asks a variety of questions you might want to know before clerking. Mistreatment is certainly something we seek to capture. But there's also other stuff you'd want to know. How does the judge provide feedback? Do I get writing and courtroom experience? Can I take vacation? All kinds of stuff you might want to know about your boss. Stuff you would get to know if you pursued other private or public sector employment. So we've created the post-clerkship survey. We are working with law schools and they are going to send out the survey link in an email explaining the law school is partnering with LAP, the Legal Accountability Project. Here's what we're doing. Prompting the past 10 to 20 years worth of alums to create an account with LAP using a whitelisting system for security. And then folks will report into the database anonymously well, if they so choose. What, I'm going to pause you for just a second. What is a, light, a whitelisting for security? What is that? Yeah, so a whitelisting system is where only folks with pre-approved email addresses can log in for write-only access to write a report about their judge or read-only access to read the reports. So there are two ways this can be accomplished. The first is for law schools to turn over to us a list of email addresses of their alums who clerked who are permitted to create an account. That's a no-go with most law schools. They don't want to turn over that information. What we're going to do instead is they are going to send an email to all of their alums who've clerked, so large, large data set. They will click on a link to create an account with us. They will use the email address their law school's provided, create a password, write a report. Then their law school dean or clerkship director will receive a dashboard for verification purposes in the database to confirm, yes, these 100 alums clerked for those judges, they're good to go. These five people, not even alums, don't know who those people are. They are not approved and don't give them access. That's how we're whitelisting the database. For write-only access for alums talking about their clerkships, mm -hmm. read-only access for students, same way, to read all the reports. That will be easier because law schools know who all their students are. They send them lots of incessant emails. They'll just send another email here, create an account using your school address. So one question about the program itself before we start getting into the programming. Do the judges and the staff have an opportunity to rebut what's being provided? Great question. This is not a public access website. Judges don't have access. Reporters don't have access. The only folks who can see this website are students and young alumni considering a clerkship. Even deans and clerkship directors at the participating schools will receive a high-level report, number of users, number of logins, number of subscribers, and some trends about mistreatment, other types of things that have been reported. No, judges do not have the opportunity to rebut anything. And here's why. The first is law clerks who face mistreatment are notoriously unwilling to report that back anywhere, to their law schools, in a formal judicial complaint, even to folks who reach out considering the clerkship and want to get the accurate information. There's two reasons for that. They fear reputational harm in the legal community, folks judging them for speaking ill or saying anything even lukewarm about their judge because there's a real problem with deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks in the legal community. There's also ongoing fears about retaliation, which is one thing I personally experience. So I'm very sensitive to this, which is judge finds out something negative was said, works actively to blackball the law clerk from getting their next job. This already exists internally at a handful of law schools. I spend a lot of time talking to judges who are overall very supportive of the work I'm doing and the database. They reference the internal databases at a handful of law schools. They know negative reports exist. They suspect that some law schools are warning folks not to apply to certain judges. They don't make a stink. They don't ask to see the reports. 
I think most judges kind of understand that in the majority of work and employment settings, performance reviews are conducted. In the vast majority of workplaces, reviews are conducted. People kind of know the good and the bad about employers and employees. So they will not have the opportunity to rebut what's in the database. I have no concerns about law clerk false reporting. We don't have a culture of false reports against judges. We have a culture of gross underreporting due to fear. So Liz, how do you verify people who would like to submit their experiences? Great question. This is a big reason why we are partnering with law schools on this initiative. Law schools have the list of alums who've clerked and contact information for them. They will be sending out the survey link via email. Folks will click a link and create an account with us using ideally that same email. And then they will go, their information will be entered into a dashboard. Law school officials will confirm that these folks clerked or did not clerk. Well, first that they are alums and that they clerked. So law schools are going to help us verify. That's why it's so important to work with law schools. We are definitely entertaining the idea of other large outside entities also sending out our survey link to improve the user experience and fill out the database. It does create some initial challenges for the Legal Accountability Project. We do need to verify that everybody who says they clerked and says they clerked for a particular judge did. Not that I'm expecting any false reports, but I want to be 110% sure. Right. So that will involve either reaching out to law schools, if your law school is listed on your LinkedIn, if your judge's name is listed on your LinkedIn, it will create some challenges for us. At the same time, we want as many reports of judges and clerkship experiences as possible. So we're willing to take on that extra work. Ideally, for folks who are attorneys and are listening to this podcast, reach out to your law school and encourage them to partner with LAP. This is the best way to ensure positive clerkship experiences. And the more that law schools partner with us, the more seamlessly we can get this survey out to all law school alums. So... There are a variety of lawyer referral services on the web. And when I say refer services is that they basically copy down the lawyer's name, address, type of work they do, and then they invite reviews. And they allegedly, use that word in quotes, somehow confirm the the reviewer. And sometimes they're spot on accurate. Other times they're a former bitter client, and sometimes they're just some nut. And the way the laws are worked is that you can't sue these platforms for libel. Now, that being said, has there been any concerns about judges, you know, taking some sort of legal action against LAP or the schools or even the individual student? Great question. No, we have excellent attorneys helping us pro bono think through all these issues. We are a publisher, so we have, as you mentioned or Mm -hmm. suggested, Section 230 immunity. We publish exactly what law clerk alumni write. They could write seven paragraphs. They could write, my judge is nice. They could only answer the ratings question and give the judge a two, give the judge a 10. They can include their name or not. We are empowering law clerk alumni for the first time to have a safe place to write candidly about their experience. We are not at all concerned about legal action from any of the entities you mentioned, but judges reach out to me every day to convey that they support this. They understand that good reviews in the database are going to bolster not only their reputations, but their clerkship applicant pools. There has been some excellent scholarship recently about the lack of diversity in clerkship hiring, and this is going to help that too. It'll empower more diverse students to pursue clerkships. It'll enable judges to look at a more diverse group of candidates. And like we talked about earlier, 
these databases already exist on a handful of law school campuses, and those schools do not face any sort of legal action. They are not facing any judges blackballing their students. Judges know these exist. I think they overestimate the number of negative reviews in there, which is interesting. But no, I mean, we think through we think through these issues every day. We think this is the best way to ensure transparency. Excellent. Excellent. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Consider sharing this show with others. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your download feeds. If you're listening directly from our blog, consider buying us a cup of coffee or two from the link on our blog to help defray some of the production costs. Thanks again and enjoy. Well, I appreciate you sharing that background and answering some of my questions along the way, but let's focus a little bit more on the tech side of things. So again, I was asking you earlier, you know, what programs are you using to collect, manage, and utilize all this information? In particular, you mentioned just now that you have some engineers. So where did you find these engineers and what did they do? Well, I didn't do this intentionally to wear a Williams sweatshirt on the day I was talking about engineers or Williams alums, but our engineers are two Williams alums. Okay. I've been trying to really hit up my Williams and WashU alumni networks in terms of folks who want to pitch in. So they are two young engineers who launched their own venture. They're database programmers. They are excellent. They educate me every single day because I'm trying to become a more tech savvy lawyer, but this is not my area. <laughs> so they are building everything for us. I have sent them the draft questionnaire, the set of questions, and they are building the survey link on the front end. They're building the database on the back end. We'll use AWS cloud storage for the enormous okay. amount of data we'll be receiving. But the engineers are really building everything for us. So when you're sending out this quote unquote invitation for law students to respond to for the schools, is it is it like just a generic email with a list of questions? Is it do you have some sort of link to a database that they log into? Can you share kind of like how that's done? Absolutely. It's a several step process. The first thing law schools are going to do is send a draft email that we will work with them together to draft, explaining okay. this law school is partnering with LAP. Here's what LAP does. I think you and I will talk a little bit later about law school programs I did this year and how that factors in. But I went to a lot of law school campuses this fall, going to war in the spring to share my story, talk about the scope of the problem, talk about our initiatives. Law schools can link to our social media and video footage about the events and say, here was Aliza on your campus sharing her story, talking about a culture of reporting. We hope you will fill out these resources as the best way to protect the next generation of young attorneys against harassment. So info about LAP, they click a link and they are prompted to create an account, first step, ideally using the email address Law Glory has on file for them and a password. They log in and they fill out our database questions, several pages worth of questions, asking both open-ended and yes, no, ratings questions about the clerkship. Only necessary question they answer is the name of the judge or else we can't file the report anywhere. Right. They will hit submit at the end of their questionnaire. It won't publish until the law schools on the back end log into their dashboard and see, okay, 50 alums made reports today. Are these 50 people alums of your law school? Did they clerk? Did they clerk for the person they said they clerked for? If those things are checked off, yes, the report publishes. So it's a multi-step process. <laughs> so recently, at the time of the reporting, I just posted a bolo, be on the lookout, regarding LastPass, and they've had several attacks and breaches into their databases. Have you had any attacks, any breaches yet? I mean, because I realize that the project is new, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't stop hackers. And are you concerned about this private information somehow 
getting out there? And what are you doing to prevent that? Database uses very tight security, including but not limited to the whitelisting system. Only folks with pre-approved access, so alums of the participating law schools and students of the participating law schools, can even log in, period. Obviously, we'll always have an audit trail to know who's logged in, mm-hmm. what they've looked at, and when. So we could, I mean, it's for security primarily and also secondarily. If a law school's alums are not using it, I can check in with their dean and say, hey, are you are you flagging this for your alums? Are you flagging this for your students? We're not overly concerned about data breaches, though, obviously. They're always a concern for folks doing this type of data Mm -hmm. collection because we're not collecting personally identifiable information. We ask questions about the clerkship that do not seek demographic information. We're also not seeking any type of bank information or anything somebody could monetize. We don't think we're at high risk for hacking. I guess some people would ask, what about a judge trying to log in? Well, obviously, they can't. And we're capping database access at five years post-grad for law school alums. So no judges could, you know, get access because they're young alums at a participating law school. So we're not overly concerned about data breaches. Obviously, this is something we think through on an ongoing basis. In order to ensure tighter security, we choose to do things like the whitelisting system and to partner with law schools that we understand make it less publicly accessible to everybody. When we say it's not a public access website, that's great for security. That also means we're not fully democratizing information just yet, because not everybody considering a clerkship can just look at this website. So I understand. Right. So I guess like concerns like Edward Snowden and the WikiLeaks, where, you know, a lot of information just became public. And so I think that might be the only that may be the only concern that you guys may have at LAP. So this isn't exactly a data breach question about info becoming public, but I did just want to say we do have a privacy policy mm-hmm. for the database that folks agree not to share information with those who should not have access. They agree right. not to take any screenshots, do any downloading, any sharing. Again, I understand that that means we're not fully democratizing the information because folks in non-participating law schools don't have access to this info. That's why I think it's so important that I'm on all these law school campuses galvanizing student support, encouraging folks to poke at their administrations to partner with us. We can democratize the information with law school partners if law schools are willing to sign on. So you're getting a lot of information. How are you managing it? How are you manipulating it so that you can come up with reports to figure out trends or concerns that, you know, you can report on back to, say, the users overall? It's a great question. So we're not going to be doing any manipulating of the reports. That's one aspect of Section 230 immunity as we publish the reports. And then students looking at the reports just read what folks have written. In terms of data manipulation, we will be generating through the database and through the engineers Mm -hmm. high-level reports for deans and clerkship directors. So number of users, number of reporters who are alums, Mm -hmm. some, we hope, high-level trends about number of folks reporting types of harassment, which we define throughout the database. Right. In order to do that, we need to have drop-down options because if people use text boxes to write harassment and they spell it incorrectly, then it takes longer to generate the reports. We hope to have those high-level reports. We are not giving deans and clerkship directors read-only access, so we do want to give them something. We do think through what kind of data could be reported in an aggregate form to because there's a real dearth of information about mistreatment in the judiciary right now, but that's Mm -hmm. kind of a longer-term process to think through how to do that. We really just need to see what we collect You and I are recording this in December, and the database folks are not even reporting into it quite yet. They'll start reporting into it next month. 
So we have a little ways to go. But so that kind of data manipulation to see where trends are, to see, you know, ages, genders, types of harassment, et cetera. Those aren't reports that you don't think would be helpful for you guys internally to figure out like what's going on to such a degree that maybe you could be proactive and help in certain areas. So what do you mean by help? So, you know, let's say that for whatever reason, I'm making this up completely, that's, you know, you realize that in the Southwest, that there is a huge problem with judges harassing African-American females in the 25 to 30 age bracket. And so once you've realized you have a target going on, then somehow reaching out to that that group and trying to figure out how to offer them some help or and or warning. Or quite frankly, I mean, if you really want to take it from more of a skeptical kind of way to figure out, okay, somehow we need to be marketing this, our project to that group to get them to participate more so we can figure out what's going on to help them figure out what to do in response. Just a couple of thoughts on that. The first is that we're doing a separate workplace assessment <laughs> starting in summer 2023, which is a data collection and analysis initiative where we'll be able to collect and report information about trends. And that is a separate project. The point, the main point of the database is to be a data transparency initiative for okay. students to read the reports. There are definitely ethical things that I think through as as we will be receiving reports and I'll see while there is a high level of mistreatment in this circuit, in this courthouse toward that group. In terms of what I am able to do about it, either a law clerk, former clerk, or a judge or chief judge needs to initiate any sort of complaint process. Aliza herself cannot do that. Gotcha. Aliza herself could, if the law clerk has included their name on their report, reach out and say, hi, would you like an attorney referral? Would you like assistance? But we definitely do not see the, the database as a platform to push any sort of agenda. It's really about empowering students to read the reports and make the best decision for themselves. Does it mean I'll feel ethically conflicted to see things, to see trends and not necessarily be able to do something about them? Certainly. But that's not the database's purpose. It's to empower students. And we hope long term, empower current and former clerks to speak out, file complaints themselves, work to remove abusers from positions of power. And honestly, as I speak with students and law clerks talking about their experiences, I see them becoming more empowered just speaking with me, sharing their story for the first time. And so I really think this is going to change the culture of the legal community from one of silence to one of reporting. So let's sort of move on to the second question, because I think you've talked about how you guys are collecting, how you're managing the information and how you're utilizing it to make a more effective database for the user and for your project. And moving to the second question, you know, I recognize in talking with you, that no offense, you're not a tech guru. You're not creating these databases by yourself, that you have some people who are some engineers who are developing this for you. And, you know, I understand you get some alumni working for you, young alumni, but did you just do a call out or did you do any interviewing vetting processing to get these engineers? Oh, yes. We did an extensive vetting process. We interviewed a huge number of candidates and then ended up getting connected through another Williams alum who's an engineer with these mm-hmm. two engineers. And they just seemed to get it immediately. Like we interviewed lots of candidates who and it's interesting because most of the engineers we spoke with didn't have any sort of legal background, but these two just seemed to get it immediately, the importance mm-hmm. of the project of transparency for law clerks, despite the fact that they have no legal experience. And I thought that was important. It's not, obviously, building anything is complex. 
from my perspective, because I don't know how to do this myself, but I've been told this is a pretty simple build and that it's more about fit between myself and the engineers, folks who understand the project, who can be responsive when I say, you know, this is not sensitive to law clerk's needs for them to kind of understand and provide feedback and think through other ways. So we just thought they were the best fit. They're not that young. I think they're probably six or seven years out of Williams. I'm like okay. nine years out of Williams. So <laughs> yeah, I'd be many years out of my schools, but that's another story. But still, you know, for some reason you went, I shouldn't say for some reason, but you know, because of your tech or lack of tech skills, you went with- You can say lack of, it's okay. <laughs> okay, just try and be polite. You went with engineers versus saying doing a DIY, do it yourself kind of program. For instance, like, you know, one of our past guests was Dorna Moyni, who is the yeah. founder of Document, which I, I think you know, mm -hmm. or yes. when you know. So yes. why didn't you do that? Was it that foreign to you that you needed to get engineers or was Document not quite the right type of platform for you? I would say both of those things, Okay, definitely. But ultimately, I wanted to ensure a good product. From, and definitely that's not something I could have built myself, but I wanted to ensure as I'm interfacing with these law schools, mm -hmm. you know, me, 31-year-old Eliza, interfacing with deans of T14 law schools, Right. I want to be confident it's going to work and right. work well, and we're not going to have issues on the back end. And even though that takes more time, more money, skilled folks, I feel like I can trust. I thought that those were good investments on the front end. Excellent. Excellent. So from your engineers, have you learned any shortcuts in dealing with your database and your information? I mean, I don't think we're going to be using too many shortcuts. They are, I learned well, from them when I day. say shortcuts, yeah. I don't mean somehow kind of just like getting through the information quickly in a cheap sort of sense. I, I mean, basically, you know, and just implementing the manipulation of the information. I think I've learned a lot of best practices from them. And I mean, I think the biggest thing that they've been helpful with so far is just how to think through the whitelisting and privacy concerns okay. that definitely deans have raised. It definitely would have been technologically easier and just logistically easier for all of us if deans were just willing to turn over their list of alumni email addresses. But when I flagged that for the engineers, they immediately had several solutions to talk through with us, several potential avenues. That's been enormously helpful. Like I said before, I think they're just very sensitive to the sensitive nature of this database. Right. And I appreciate that. And they're able to pivot when I'm like, nope, but that Dean said we can't do that. And so they have a backup. <laughs> so so actually, I think you provided the proper word. I shouldn't say tech shortcuts. I should say best practices. So you've mentioned one. Do you have a couple others that you could share? Nothing I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, let's get into the last question. You're using technology to create a platform for people, some of whom may be going through an emotionally intense time or reliving uncomfortable events. What are three ways you're being mindful when using technology so it doesn't seem that to the user that it's just a soulless process? So I love this question. We haven't really talked about my personal experience, but I, I served as a law clerk from 2019 to 2020 and faced harassment, gender discrimination, and ultimately retaliation by the judge for whom I clerked. Sorry. Thank you. I submitted written testimony before the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Courts in March 2022, publicly sharing my experience in order to advocate for the Judiciary Accountability Act. That's legislation that would extend Title VII protections to judiciary employees, including law clerks. Currently, law clerks, folks like former mate, cannot sue their harassers and seek damages for harms done to 
their lives. And this makes the judiciary a particularly unsafe and unregulated work environment. To answer your question, I have been sharing my experience publicly every single day since March 17th, 2022. I've published, as of this recording, I think 18 articles, including six law journal articles on this topic. Post every single day on social media. I've done over 60 podcasts. A bunch of articles have been written about me. I share my story every day, and I think it's important to put a personal base and a personal story on abstract issues. What is harassment? What is judicial accountability? I'm out there taking the heat for folks who are not empowered to speak publicly, for folks who will never speak publicly. Law clerks reach out to me every single day to thank me and confide in me and tell me they'll probably never speak publicly. So the first thing is I'm out there sharing my story every day. Folks know this is not just a soulless data collection initiative for me. This is what I have dedicated my career and my life to. Running the Legal Accountability Project is my full-time job. So I'm out there sharing my experience every day, which I think is the most important thing. Second thing is I speak with a lot of law students. I visited 23 law school campuses in the fall, and we're visiting more in the spring to share my story and talk about these issues. I spend an enormous amount of time engaging with students and alums in advance of and following these events on various social media platforms and one-on-one conversations, talking with them, galvanizing student support, empowering them to demand safer workplaces, inspiring their alumni counterparts to speak publicly themselves and share their experiences. So I think that was Probably two ways that I... You're certainly putting a human face on this, which I think helps a lot. Absolutely. I think that is probably the most, one of the most important things about my role at the Legal Accountability Project. Sometimes donors will ask, well, a, a question from donors is usually, well, why is this person the right person to be seeking money for this initiative? There are never questions like that for me. It is obvious why I am the right person to be doing this. I think it also makes it a little bit harder for deans and clerkship directors to not engage with me. I'm engaging productively with about 70 law schools worth of deans and clerkship directors. And when I send the initial email asking for 15 minutes to talk about their clerkship resources and what LAP can do for them, I lead with my written testimony. They all know who I am at this point. And there is really only one law school clerkship director who's refused to speak with me at this point. <laughs> well, shame on that that director. I'll be back on her campus in a couple months. So. <laughs> we'll see. Well, you have my support, and I hope the support of the listeners too. That you know, this director obviously needs to perhaps get with the game. We hope so. <laughs> so, Tao, let's change the questions for just a second. We we've kind of covered the main questions, but I'll, I'll ask you: What are your personal tech shortcuts? What are your favorite three personal tech shortcuts that help you get your stuff done during the day? You've got a lot to do, obviously: traveling, blogging, reporting, writing. Yeah. Honestly, I am very reliant on my iPhone and the calendar for alerts, for notes, for reminders. I think that is like the most important tool in my arsenal is the calendar with reminders. But I still take, honestly, short hard copy notes when I do most of my calls with deans Mm -hmm. and then later type them up as a way to kind of think through issues. Okay. That's a long cut that helps me. But it makes me digest special, information. Do you have like a special writing utensil or a special kind of notepad you use? I do. I have some very decorative like paper that I use. Okay, yeah. cool. And my nice blue ballpoint pens from my former, <laughs> former lawyer days. Those are the two main ones. I, mean, I keep a lot of really detailed notes and spreadsheets 
and go back through and update my notes. I am like a big list maker. Okay. That it's helpful for me to be able to cross stuff off at the end of the day. Right, right. I feel like I would probably say that too, but okay. it makes me feel accomplished. Eliza, I want to thank you for sharing everything with us today. And where can people find you? So they can check out our website, legalaccountabilityproject.org mm-hmm. to support us, learn more info, join our mailing list. I'm at Eliza.Schatzman at legalaccountabilityproject.org. And I love to hear from people sharing their stories, wanting to get more involved. Find me on social media, on Twitter, at Eliza Schatzman or on LinkedIn. We're pretty active as well. I talk about these issues literally seven days a week. Well, thank you again, and I wish you and your project the best. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast. Our next episode will be posted in about two weeks. If you have any ideas about a future episode, please contact me at DJ at TechSavvyLawyer.page. Have a great day and happy lawyering. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.